Well, hello, and welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And we're joined by a friend, a musician. You know her. You love her. It's Sabrina Fuentes of Pretty Sick. Hi. Welcome to Jokerman. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is kind of a long time in coming. We're, we've been friends for what? How long? Several really years. Really long time. Yeah. Mm, I feel like we met probably when I was like... 16 through Jack. So through really Jack, fun. yeah. Like six years. Yeah. Seven? Well, I'm glad we finally got you on the program. We're talking about Nico. Also a long time coming. Yeah. Yes, literally yeah. the first episode of the podcast ever devoted to a female musician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we figured we ha- we had to get a female musician on. I mean, just like, we, we, we love you. It, we're so glad you're here, but you're also serving an important purpose, which is to make sure that we look uh, good. <laughs> Um, there's a couple like reasons why beyond that, because we're talking about Chelsea girl and you were born and raised in New York city. Were you not? Yeah. You've done modeling and rock and roll. This is true. We have a lot of our very own Chelsea girl on the program. Uh Have you ever stayed in the Chelsea hotel? No, I haven't, but I know a lot of people who grew up there. My friend Maliki, who just toured with us. He opened with his band, Mitsubishi Suicide. He grew up in the Chelsea Hotel, and I'd known him since I was, like, 14. Um, And he has tons of spooky stories and historical facts about it. I really envy everybody who got to spend time in that place before it got redone recently. Now it's all, like, gentrified. Was it haunted previously before the redoing? I think it's probably still haunted, but, yeah. I know (laughs) Maliki has seen the ghosts there, and he says that he has, like, he just remembers like doors slamming and like things falling over and lights flickering. So like Hell classic yeah. ghost stuff. But I, I met this other woman um, through a friend of mine in the East Village and she still lives there. She was one of the residents who refused to leave. And she says that she has like Polaroids of the ghosts and stuff. And there's this lady in white on one of the floors who like shows up in the background of all of her pictures. Wow. So. Is that what the ghost is? It's a it's a lady. Yeah, there, well, there's a bunch of them. There's a few. Um, people say that Nancy haunts the Chelsea Hotel too, but I don't know anybody who's had firsthand encounters with her um, specter. But there's a lady on like I think it's either the ninth floor, or the thirteenth floor. I can't remember, but she wears all white and she looks like a foggy little haze. Whoa! In the background of pictures. Oh, she just looks like a foggy little haze. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds kind of like you're hitting on a ghost, mm-hmm. like a foggy little haze. <laughs> well, let's uh, go into the foggy little haze of time. How about sure. that? Yeah. And we can <laughs> and talk about the the record a little bit. And and I don't know. In general, in where do you, where to start? Well, I mean, uh, it, I guess it should be noted that. Chelsea Girl, the album by Nico, her debut solo record, was sort of uh, not a sequel to Chelsea Girls, the movie, but sort of like a takeoff on it or like a, a, a continuation I- inhabiting the same universe, the, the Chelsea Girl universe <laughs> established the, by Andy, the Andy Warhol. The uh, Andy Warhol Chelsea Girls extended. Have you seen Chelsea Girls, the movie? I have not. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of his other films. It has a lot of Nico in it. I have not seen all of it. Um, I've only seen clips too, but I, I think I saw it. I think they played it in a museum when I was in high school and I saw it then, but I don't remember. I, after that, I've seen it on the internet. Hmm. I mean, that's cool when an album is the sequel to a movie. I don't know if that's ever happened um, before. 
That happens sometimes, right? Sometimes. We hear about these things. Probably. Uh, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Sure. <laughs> it's, that's just a soundtrack. Just a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, this is not the soundtrack. This came out a year after Chelsea Girls, the movie, I think, right? That was 66, and this was 67, so maybe being written and recorded uh, around the same time. I think she played a lot of them out before. Like, they had all been played. Not all, but a lot of them. Right. Had been heard by everybody already. And produced by Tom Wilson, uh, who we've met uh, several times in our journey so far. Obviously, producer with Bob on tracks like Rolling Stone and produced uh, The Velvets on uh, The Velvet Underground and Nico. So, uh, inhabiting the same kind of world that we have come to know and love. And the record, obviously performed by Nico, uh, and it is a Nico record, but uh, is made up of songs written by some of our very favorites uh, that we've already covered, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into uh, in due time. Yeah, there's a colorful cast of, it's all men, right, oh. who wrote uh, the songs? Yes. <laughs> Except for her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Che- it, it's Chelsea men. Yeah. That's if we just did a podcast only about Nico. Well, Chelsea I men. mean, it's... <laughs> I think it is sort of uh, uh, true to like what was going on around Nico at this moment in time and not necessarily true to her own artistic vision because it wasn't, uh, which we'll also get into momentarily. But she does seem to, in the early days of her career, sort of exist as this chanteuse, this muse, this sort of like uh, lens through which all of these other male artistic personalities, Lou, John, Andy, Bob, Jackson Brown, etc., can sort of filter their own visions. And she moves, to her credit, moves away from that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pretty quickly and extremely over the following, you know, years of her, of her career. But at this earlier day, she is sort of, um, you know, uh, almost being, there's an element of like, I don't know, being used to a certain extent. Uh, not against her will necessarily, but she's, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, like I said, this this vessel for this stuff that comes outside of her. Yeah. I think it's interesting because it feels as though a lot of the songs were written about her or a character that she's supposed to portray mm-hmm. at the same time. So it feels almost collaborative because it, it feels like stuff that she relates to in the community that she was an active participant in. Right. Totally. But, um, yeah, I don't know. No, that's that's like a really interesting point, especially because uh, she was actually an actor. She studied with, I think, with Lee Strasberg and then was like, I guess at this point, I don't know, this record to the point you made, Sabrina, is like it feels like her utilizing that attention to kind of like re as much as she could make it into something that was her own um, design. And of course, it kind of sucks that it, it it's not ultimately. It's like a compromised record, I think, from like relative to her what she would do next. Yeah. But we, I mean, that's sort of gonna be part of just the conversation about the album is like, just like with Lou Reed's first solo record, he was so like nobody really thinks it's as good as anything else he did. It's it it's totally like baby steps in some ways. But honestly, the things that are compromised about this record, I feel like, are because of other people and not because of Nico. Yeah, it's a beautiful record, I think. Just like very easily, like certainly of all the Nico records, the easiest listen, the easiest hang, um, and just the most like evidently on its surface, just like beautiful, I think, because it is so simple and uh, a lot of the 
uh, tortured, um, uh, heavier kind of stuff had yet to seep its way in, perhaps because she herself wasn't, you know, yet, uh, uh, you know, writing her own songs the way that she would. Well, you say that, but like the first, the second song is like the most tortured song ever from written. a lyrical standpoint yes but it is still a very pretty kind of song I, i'm saying oh, yeah, this isn't yeah. this doesn't sound like Sounds the nice end or desert shore or yeah. something yeah <laughs> it's easier just to yeah. flip on true well should we talk about the album probably yeah it's the fairest of the seasons mm this song is so, so good. So beautiful. I feel like it's such an amazing opening track to an album. Now that it's time, now that the hour hand is landed at the end, now that it's real, now that the dreams have given all they had to lend, I want to know Do I stay or do I go And maybe try another time And do I really have a hand in my forgetting Yeah, I feel like it's such a like amazing opener also because of like the message that it leaves you with of like someone who you know, wasn't necessarily going to stick around, but then they stay. It feels like kind of a great opening to all these songs about a particular time and community of people Mm. and sticking around that time and community of people to see what happens next. Yeah. That's something that keeps coming up when we talk about the Velvet Underground. And it's an an unusual thing that I, I didn't expect to come up as often as it does, but like really something crucial about them is that there's all these feelings, there's all these references to other people. And so this idea that sort of cumulatively develops of like this crowd and this feeling of a community and an actual time and place, um, which not many other bands have that, like uh, where it actually makes you think about something beyond the band so much. I mean, to me, it feels like Nico is like the embodiment of like all the work that they did with the Velvet Underground talking about these different characters. This album feels like they just took the All Tomorrow's Party Girl and then honed in on that and wrote a whole album about her. <laughs> wow. And then Nico gets to like sense. personify her. That's a, especially with this record, an interesting way to think about it. And I was, I, I kind of had a similar thought, but about the third track, it felt like it might be about like Edie Sedgwick or something. There's kind of this feeling that she's on this record singing for those, those women in that scene. Yeah, definitely. It definitely feels that way. And I feel like, especially like as an actress and as a performer, it feels like she took kind of bits and pieces from all of these women that, and the men around her that were existing and all had big personalities to kind of create one hodgepodge of people. Mm. and tell a story through that which is really interesting and pretty and like engaging yeah there you go it does a great job of uh yeah just sort of capturing an essence of maybe nico maybe people that nico knew maybe people that nico was interested in around her um uh i don't know it's 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 almost sort of like a character driven Mm -hmm. record to me you know uh Mm -hmm. in a way that 
like the velvet stuff wasn't necessarily. Um, yeah. It's cool uh, and like really unique in that way uh, and also really unique and cool sounding musically because uh, this is very different than songs like Femme Fatale uh, or All Tomorrow's Parties, um, even though they kind of come from a lot of the same component pieces. John is on this record doing the viola um, and uh, obviously Wilson had produced it and a lot of these songs are written by Lou. Um, so you would, you would sort of expect it to sound close-ish to maybe what had been on the first Velvet's record. And in certain points it does, but it also has like, it's just completely its own kind of flavor from, from the jump, from this very first song, which does a great job of sort of, um, establishing the musical palette that we're going to get across. the. Yeah. And the tonal thing of, of it being character driven, it's like, um, I don't know. I, I didn't think about it the way that you did, um, Sabrina, like, so directly but it's such an interesting way to like frame it that this might as well be the internal dialogue or monologue of the girl from all tomorrow's parties which is you know is such an archetypal character and i think what this record does and what you get right away on this song is it changes that um it stops being archetypal and it becomes more specific and actually more dignified in doing so i think by uh, taking the time to get more, to get closer into the actual thoughts and feelings of this woman, rather than just being, you know, a song written about sort of a woman in the abstract. I mm. uh, should also note uh, first appearance of several on the record uh, of our boy Jackson as a our musician, boy but also as a as a lyricist. I feel like you're going through a sort of Jackson Brown phase yourself right now, Evan. Regrettably, <laughs> I only say that because he wrote a lot of sad songs. Yeah. How long have I been sleeping? How long have I been drifting along through the night? How long have I been dreaming I could make it right if I close? But um, yeah. really good. He's like the light side of the dark side of Warren Zevon. Yeah, totally. They they were like bros and They're total bros, exactly. Where he produced Zevon stuff and mm-hmm. and Jackson was a really positive kind of modulating influence on Warren's life later. But yeah, you're right. He was just uh, I think he was playing with Nico just around New York at the time and wrote some songs for her, and they ended up being like perfectly suited for this kind of mode and mood. And this is maybe. Not the best example, but one of the best examples, Ferris of the Seasons. It, lyrically, which we haven't really talked touched on too much, it's kind of like "Don't Think Twice, It's All Right." It's like the idea of kind of mulling over, leaving somebody that you're you're realizing is it, the it's gone, like there's nothing left there, and it's kind mm-hmm. of at the end, um, resign, like sort of this resigned but slightly optimistic idea that like I've made the right decision mm-hmm. oh, I always interpreted the lyrics really differently to me this song is like thinking about all the reasons you should probably leave but then you're like oh, I'll stick around for a bit longer to see what happens mm. it's kind of the inverse <laughs> well the, yeah yeah no I think you're actually more right because the sort of dramatic irony of those last lines is that 
I'll stick around. I'll leave in it's winter now and I'll leave when it's better. And you're, she probably won't. Yeah. In the fairest of the seasons. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that that contributes to the character that she creates overall really well. Cause I mean, like, I think with like the idea of like a party girl, like always going out and has to be at the next thing. Like that kind of is the idea, right? It's like, Oh, well I'll just go out tonight because like, it'll be great tonight, but it, it'll be worse tomorrow. So I'll leave tomorrow. But like you just end up right. going out every single night. Yeah, which I think it's a really right. cute and innocent and like intimate way to open this album and start talking about that kind of lifestyle and that kind of character. Cause it, it's like a bit more like intimate than just saying this is a girl who goes out every night. Yeah. I mean, it changes it from being just about like a cute girl, a cute party girl to like a beautiful soul <laughs> of a girl. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's kind of, Heightens the drama. To, yeah. <laughs> I'm falling in love uh, with Nico. <laughs> You're, you, you wouldn't be the first. Speaking of seasons, this is just a very, like, fall-winter sounding album mm -hmm. to me. Like, just putting this on again the last couple times uh, over the last week or so, and it's, like, early December. It's, like, finally starting to get kind of crisp. The leaves are falling. It's been raining here in California. It's, like, and I'm sure it's even better to be listening to this in New York right now. Where are you right now? I'm in New York right now, but I also, this was, I mean, I feel like this has been my, like, this album and Velvet Underground and Nico have been my, like, fall albums for my whole life. And I just remember going back to school every year and, like, from the end of eighth grade when I first started really liking Velvet Underground, like, my first freshman year of high school and every beginning of the school year after that have all been so colored by this album and that album that, like, to me, it's absolutely a September October, November album. Yeah. Leaves leaves are falling in your mind when you're listening to this album. Yeah. Whether or not they actually are outside the window. If music can sound like that, then yeah, that's what this exactly. one does. Um, well, that's the fairest of the seasons. And it only it only gets more <laughs> exciting and happy from there. Yeah. <laughs> These, These days. days. <laughs> uh is the high the high point of the record which is to say it's the low point of the record like this is this song is like it sounds so sweet and it, it carries on that feeling that is brought on by the first track but um it it actually lyrically is like at the bottom of the mariana trench yeah. it's profound profoundly sad it's beautiful yeah i wonder a lot about like the relationships that like uh inspired this song for jackson brown because especially at like 16 years old just fucking crazy 
that yeah, line. That, I, don't confront wait. me with my failures. I have not forgotten them. He wrote this when he was. He wrote this when he was sixteen. That's what it says on Genius. Yeah, I didn't know that either, but I just read it too. That's mind blowing. When he was sixteen. What were you failing at at sixteen? Oh my God. <laughs> Why can't you forget it? Well, the, the, yeah, it's forget like my failures to like uh, invite someone to the um, sock hop. <laughs> <laughs> I lost in the spelling bee in the second round. No, I, I think that the song feels like it's from an old, old soul. Not necessarily an old person, but it from somebody who has seen too much, uh, however old they are, and can't really do anything about it. Like, doesn't know how to continue with a, a, a life as normal. Um, and that really resonates with Nico because I think just knowing anything about her life she had a really intense upbringing I mean childhood like I believe she was she witnessed the bombing of Dresden if I'm not mistaken right and uh it was like a deeply impactful thing upon her she was also raped at 15 uh, and her father was in the SS and was was killed in the war. So a lot of um, deep darkness, darkness. Uh, which this song doesn't necessarily touch upon those things at all. But it feels like when she sings this, even though she's young and, and pretty, like you believe her, the sadness feels believable. Yeah, I feel like she has such a like detached and mysterious and like nonchalant way of putting these really heavy lyrics. But in mm-hmm. this song, out of all the other songs on the album, this one feels like the most that she like is connecting to and like can feel the pain of. Because there's other songs where like I feel like she's a lot. She just feels so nonchalant and like devil may care about some of the stuff she's saying. But in this song, at least like vocally. And like melodically, it feels like she like really feels every word. Very, which is probably what makes it one of the best on the album as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's yeah, so it's great. probably the, the best. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. and you know, and <laughs> it's it's got like seven times more plays on Spotify than anything else. Uh, so it's not the deepest cut, but there's a reason that it's you know the most popular. It's also because it's just far and away the one from the record. Uh, I think it also not only like speaks to where she came from, but like where she would go, you know, like knowing the rest of her career where she puts out this record and a couple other really great ones early on and then really kind of just struggles from there on out and and has other high points artistically uh, throughout the rest of her career. Um, But, you know, compared to John and Lou, for instance, and the... um, uh, the the paths that they went on post Velvets, um, and even John, who you know has obviously had a lot of ups and downs himself, it's just like uh, you know it was, it was heavy. You know, it, it, she just like um, I don't know th- this this stuff, this moment in time. This came out in '67. Obviously, the first Velvets record came out in '66. Feels like it's just like a like a high water mark, just really crystallized in time on this record, on that record, um, and like in presumably Chelsea Girls the movie, um, but um, you know, thinking back on it, like it was 18 months, you know, it was 24 months or something. Um, it's, it's, it's shorter than the amount of time that we've been doing podcasts at this point. Um, and, uh, and it was all kind of leading up to that and then moving on from that for the rest of her career. Um, 
there's something kind of magical and, and appropriate about that, um, just based on, you know, kind of who she was, I think. Yeah. The song also, just because I don't have, it's not every day I get to talk about it, but I, I mean, I think it's just one of the all-time great songs like of the 20th century i think it's really one of the best ballads as much as we talk about like man on the street songs when we talk about like the american songbook type stuff that dylan put out like this is as good as any of those and i think this is the superior version to jackson brown's version um Mm, totally i do too like it's kind of no question and just as a song about heartbreak the thing that sets this song apart in my mind is just that it it's not about the moment of heartbreak. It's not being in the throes of heartbreak. It's in this infinite space after that that you just have to live in. And there's not many songs that would choose to be about that feeling of aimlessness that happens after long after the thing is over. And this song handles that subject with such care and ends up being with those final lines. Like I've heard this song a million times. I was just walking, listening to it. And the final lines still managed to like ring a a couple tears out of me. It's just, they're brutal. Yeah. I love the, just those two lines there right before the very end these days, I sit on cornerstones and count the time and quarter tones to 10, just like the rhythmic poetic quality, like the way those words just kind of jumble up and roll off the tongue one into the other is so perfect. I think that like the level of honesty achieved in the lyricism in this song is so rare and like hard to achieve. It's really impressive. And her delivery of it is also so honest and like pure that together that really just creates the perfect song. Absolutely. And features a very uh, uh, present uh, bit of viola from our boy John. Oh, yeah. Uh, which Nico <laughs> did not well, like. No, what Nico did, she didn't, she didn't love like, the strings, apparently. She didn't like the strings she hated or the flutes. The she flute. really hated the flutes, yeah. which we'll see momentarily. But, I mean, for my money, you know, uh, I know at the time, you know, it, it can seem shocking if you're not expecting those kind of um, uh, uh, sounds to show up on songs, then all of a sudden there they are. But, I mean, like this song, for instance, I can't imagine without the strings on it. Mm-mm. Yeah. And this this version, this arrangement is really kind of perfect as is. Yeah. I just, that last couple lines, like, I actually went through this moment of listening to it today thinking, don't confront me with my failures. Like, I have not forgotten them. It's kind of, it was almost like, oh, that's kind of on the nose or it's kind of like, like, feel sorry for me. But actually... I just thought about it for a little longer. And I think that what that does to frame the song is it, it kind of re it, it, it retroactively makes the song all about someone who um, as detached as they might sound and as kind of um, ho-hum about what's happened, they might sound, they are constantly replaying things in their head and, it's not as empty as it sounds. It's full of longing and regret. Yeah. These days I sit on cornerstones and count the time and quarter turns to ten. Please don't confront me with my failures. I had not forgotten them. 
Jackson Brown, at various points, he's been the saddest bastard on planet Earth. Because uh, he's uh, very good at being very sad. Who hurt you, Jackson? Um, little sister. John on the organ? Uh, I believe so, yeah. He's credited for uh, viola, organ, and guitar on the on the record. Yeah, which makes sense. And this is a John and Lou composition. Really? Uh, that's, that's what the credits say, at least. Uh, I don't know if this would have been something that they had workshopped previously, and then it was just left over and sort of given to Nico or written deliberately for Nico for this record. Mm. Um, cause it seems like there's a little bit of both on this album, uh, other than this song. Um, but either way, I think it makes, you know, it fits into this sort of collage, this, this character study effortlessly. Uh, and I think you're right, uh, Evan, when you said, you know, it seems like this type of song could be about, or could be, you know, partially inspired by like Edie Sedgwick and probably Nico herself and probably a zillion other people that were running around in the same scene, kind of in the same way that, the Femme Fatale or All Tomorrow's Parties Girls were the subjects of those songs. But this one is, it's Nico's turn to actually deliver it. Uh, I think like a standout for me, uh, just revisiting the record, I really thought this one works really well. Even the flutes. Yeah. Okay. So the <laughs> the thing that Nico said about the flutes was, um, I quote, I still cannot listen to it because everything I wanted for that record, they took it away. I asked for drums, they said no. I asked for more guitars, and they said no. And I asked for simplicity, and they covered it in flutes. They (laughs) added strings, and I don't like them, but I could live with them. But the flute, the first time I heard the album, I cried, and it was all because of the flute. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine, like, just uh, Nico getting home with, like, a test pressing of her record and putting it on, and hearing the flutes and just breaking down on like a beautiful sofa uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't very as cool as she wanted it to be because of these beautiful, delicate flutes fluttering behind her vocals. But that's a really important thing about understanding what the record is and isn't, I think is that, um, and who she is as an artist. It's like by all, she should have been able to make those calls. Like that is absolutely what should have happened. But the flutes sound nice, I guess. I feel bad for Nico, but I like them. I feel the same way. I feel bad that she hated them so much. <laughs> I think they're really good. But it also, it makes me think about how, like, how much she wanted to distance herself from this album immediately after it was out, and like with her like follow up releases, and like how it's interesting that this mm. is. Pro- I think I feel like this album is how 
most of her fans think of her and most of history remembers her. Totally. But she probably would not have been super stoked on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be the devil's advocate, or I mean, Nico's advocate, uh, just to say that, yeah, it, it's, I would have liked to hear, and I wonder if that exists, is like a, a mix of it without um, the overdubs, just because I love the more austere moments on the record. Um, and I mean, I have no problem with, it sounds good, but um, she's got such a, a presence already. I think she could carry it with, with less instrumentation. Well, that quote is interesting because it sounds like actually she wanted more instrumentation. Well, she wanted she, said, drums. she wanted drums and she wanted more guitars. It sounds like she wanted to make a rock record. Yeah, and yeah. this is this is a pop record. Um, and I I definitely think, and that's kind of what I was getting at earlier is like this first record is all songs not written by her. It's produced by Tom Wilson, Bob Jackson, John Lou all have their hands in the pie here. Like it. It feels like uh, this really kind of gendered uh, um, uh, approach to making this this record <laughs> like for her. men deciding that a woman's record needs to be different exactly. than a man's this, record. This is what a woman's record should sound like, exactly. And it does sound beautiful, and it is you know striking and just one of the most uh, I, I think just plainly beautiful documents in uh, in in recorded music history. But I think there there is absolutely this aspect of just like you know she didn't have the chance to make the record that she wanted to because it wasn't considered you know whatever appropriate or like made sense uh for someone in her position at this moment in time yeah i mean there's so much that you could dig into there just about the like gender politics of that because it feels almost like this record was an opportunity for all these men to explore their feminine side and she wanted to explore her masculine side i mean i I think in a way it's kind of a testament though to like as a female musician, and I know a lot of other, I, I feel like I see this happen amongst my peers who are also female musicians. There's like an internal pressure to lean into the masculine and to go harder because like it is kind of more vulnerable for women to just be like women and you open yourself up to the criticism of just being a woman. But hmm, I mean, right. I think that this is her best album and some of her best work. And I would have liked to see like, down the line in her career if she had leaned right. back into being more feminine and more vulnerable and same with like you know a lot of male musicians i'm sure feel the pressure to be like harder and it's like almost putting up a wall to an extent that you can hide behind you know like loud rock and roll and not take criticism but with this like with a folk pop album it invites a lot of critique and like being very feminine as like a pretty blonde woman invites a lot of critique and like i love the rest of her um, discography as well, but I'd love to hear. I would. I wish I could have heard her do yeah. something like this on her own terms. It's almost like this kind of approach or sound, like uh, it just like the way that the record was created. It left a bad taste in her mouth, so she had to sort of react mm. against that on the next record and for the rest of her career because it's really notable with the Marvel yeah. Index, which comes out literally a year later. The way it sounds and every track top to bottom just written by Nico. Like there's not a single other person's not a word from a single other person besides her on that record which really feels like her making a statement and proving like hey no i can actually i can hang with these guys just as well as as anyone else yeah it does feel like she's proving that point too because also a lot of that her writing by herself on that record was greatly encouraged by jim morrison who she really wanted to <laughs> right and so it does feel like she kind of was pushing herself in that direction so that she could prove to everybody else but i i would love to have heard her lean back into the feminine instead of trying to prove that point as a woman. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's something about what she does here, which is you would never know if you didn't read that she was displeased with it, that she was. I think that she inhabits the songs really naturally, and it feels like a committed performance from top to bottom. And yeah, I, I think that is a really good point, that it is a shame that perhaps the way that this was handled, all those strings and flutes were added without her involvement at all. And maybe if they just had talked about it and it had been more collaborative artistically, she wouldn't have felt it was something she had to react against. Not to say that her next work is bad. I mean, and it's also totally not like standard issue rock, what she would do after this. Um, It's totally genuine, like avant-garde music, art songs. But that is just a, a really fascinating dynamic where sometimes female musicians feel they need to be more masculine even just to fit in and sometimes male musicians actually like try to weasel their way into being seeming like more gentle when they're they're not weasel their way (laughs) it sounds like you're thinking of someone in particular here i mean i don't have to think of someone in particular you could think of a million examples i couldn't tell if you were trying to subtweet someone (laughs) <laughs> no. which you've been known to do no i don't think so no not this time <laughs> okay well winter song i was listening to winter song the whole time we were talking kind of in the background <laughs> okay this one is fluted this, this song is fucking flutes out the ass yeah we got a flautist up in here On your eyelids that curtsy with age Is freezing the stairs on tyranny swings The bitter is hard and warmth of your skin Is diseased with familiar caresses <laughs> I love how like weirdly medieval this one sounds Yeah, it's totally I feel like it's the folkiest one on the album That's the John right there fucking john's medieval ass fucking welsh welshman yeah they're wearing those like i don't, I wish i knew what those outfits are called the, the one like a lute player would wear with like the like sort of slouchy hat and tights yeah and, there's a lot of like the, like the bugs bunny kind of medieval cartoon look with the like the frilly collar around yeah. his neck and like the, the tunic and shit Fortunately, I don't think the historians are listening to this show. We're not popular in the academic community, thanks to your behavior on Twitter <laughs> well, over the last 48 okay. hours. <laughs> a, a lot of those academic types, they were just, um, uh, they hate Bob Dylan in the first Listen, place. So, I hate the academics, and I say this as a failed academic myself, and they have no greater uh, project than to come to the defense of every failed legacy publication rock critic like those fools were from that idiot's uh, reviews. Basically but. what happened, Sabrina, to fill you in, was yesterday I got in a Twitter <laughs> war with a bunch of, I don't even know, professors who have podcasts, and they were like, I don't want to read Bob Dylan's book. It's bad. And I just said, like, well, how do you know it's bad if you haven't read it? And then they dogpiled me, so I had to defend myself. And then John Cusack, God bless him, uh, came to our aid. And <laughs> Friend of the us. show, John Cusack. Whoa, no way. I was like you know, lamenting having spent any time at all talking to these losers. And then he was like, sounds like a bad use of time. Winky face. <laughs> <laughs> that's dope. Uh, that's awesome. It saved our life against those poindexters, yeah. those pencil necks. Nerds. That's right. <laughs> um, so this song is, yeah, very medieval and um, cute. 
Yeah. It sounds like the kind of song that John would like to write and then, you know, just have Nico perform. I mean, it feels almost like it was written on strings and then all the other instrumentation was added because to me that feels like the biggest part of this song. Yeah. Definitely. And like, I think rhythmically, like you can tell also, right? Because the the first couple, like Ferris of the Seasons in these days have a very kind of like standard pop kind of structure. Like they sound like pop songs, verse, chorus, verse, and like the the melody on the guitar and stuff. And this is, has a little bit more of that like atonal um, and kind of aggressive avant-garde arty feeling that you're going to get on the Nico records that come after that. Obviously in a very minor kind of small dose compared to where she's going to go. But uh, I think you're totally right about that. And where she's going to go on the next song, which is an eight minute song and like a total epic, which feels almost like Indian. Like it has yeah. kind of this Raga like feeling. It's very like. It makes sense because this is John and Lou and this oh, actually does have a Nico writing credit. Yeah, on this it. is the it's only the one, one with her writing credit on it. With a writing credit. So this on is John, exactly. Lou and Nico. Mm-hmm. There you go. Is there another time when that's ever happened? I mean, there's the. I mean, there's like the Bataclan performance where right. the three of them all did that stuff together. Which we uh, talked about with Steve Gunn. Friend of the pod, Steve, yeah. But I don't know that they all three shared a credit on one song the way that this did. If they did, you know, news to me. I mean, that's what makes this song really notable, if nothing else. is like, that's kind of a one-off collaboration as far as I can tell. And it, it does feel unique on the record. It feels like this is a no-compromise song like you don't put this on a record if you've got a record executive breathing down your neck like this is in stark defiance to anybody who wants it to be commercial This is definitely, as you said, I think like the most art song, art song on the record. Totally. And it feels the most like the Velvet Underground to me. It feels like something that they would have mm-hmm. played live and maybe not recorded, but that they would have had in their repertoire together as a group. Totally. Yeah, you could very easily imagine like the like John's like the electric viola kind of sound just somewhere in the background of this song that you don't it, you don't get it on the record, but you could you could very easily see that. Like the Black Angels death song that, is exactly, the only that thing that's, it kind of reminds me of that, which at the Bataclan performance, they did mm-hmm. do a version of that, right? Yeah. And it was like softer and more kind of coherent uh, as a piece. Yeah. It sounded more like an actual song as opposed to like a, you know, a, a exercise in <laughs> making your ears hurt. Well, what, what do you feel, Sabrina, about your experience making rock music? Like, would you ever do something like this? Like an eight minute song that just kind of goes where it goes? I don't know. I mean, it depends on what kind of music I was making. I don't know. It depends on uh, who I was playing with. Because in Pretty Sick, we've had like a rolling cast of members for a long time. So think of Austin who used to play drums um with us and is in the band Onyx Collective he's like a jazz drummer 
him and me and Orazio, who is in the band currently, he played, we both play bass, but we play double bass and then he switches to guitar sometimes. But I would do like double bass and Austin on drums because I feel like as musicians, um, they lean the most in the group away from straightforward pop writing, whereas Wade and Ava and I are pretty straightforward, like A, B, A, B, C, A songwriters. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be so fun to. We jam like that. We have so many voice memos like that that Austin is encouraged just to put out, but oh, I want to hear that. Them. Now I can send them to you. He hates re-recording them because he doesn't want to lose the energy, which I understand as well. So yeah, I guess so. It'd be cool to do something that's just voice memos one day and have yeah. all the like kind of scraps. But I don't know how much the label would like that. <laughs> well, I'm sure the label didn't like this. Just throw some flutes on the voice memos and they'll be thrilled. This is fast. Yeah. They would love that. <laughs> you know what this needs? <laughs> just like going into the studio after like his Nico gone. Now that we're alone. Bring the flute guy in. Bring the flute the back door. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a guy walking in with a flute, like in in like a like a gun case. Yeah, fifteen flutes. <laughs> yeah, assembling the flutes like a like a sniper, sniper rifle. rifle. Yeah. <laughs> He's got like a silencer on the edge of the flute so that Nico so Nico can't hear it. Yeah, her, her German ears can't hear this American-made flute. Uh, it is crazy that her dad was in the SS. It is fucked like, up that her dad was in the SS. Yeah, and uh, and, for and all, it, it seems like she was influenced by that. Some of the, uh, some of the beliefs uh, that uh, her dad probably uh, proffered seem to have uh, tra- transferred their way onto Nico, given her uh, yeah. behavior towards Lou <laughs> in the following years. She also did um have a at least briefly a relationship with him but didn't she say something like i'll never fuck another jew or something like exactly that? <laughs> yeah I, out of curiosity before this was just watching like old nico interviews and all this other stuff and i was like i wonder what would happen if i googled um nico chelsea girl on tiktok oh. and i did and it was just like tons of videos of like teenage girls being like this is a cute trend but Nico was incredibly uh, racist and terrible. She's a Nazi? What? <laughs> like, oh live react to finding out that Nico stabbed a black woman with glass. Uh, that, that allegedly, she did attack a black woman with a, with a broken glass. Horrible. We would, we would, we would like, like to distance to ourselves from it. <laughs> all uh, violence and hatred here on the podcast. Yeah, um, and Nico was... Um, Person who put out this record. That's right. Yeah, that's why. That's the. That's the way that we're talking about. That's right. It. Yeah. God. Fucking people like this are just not made to be talked about or appear on TikTok. That's like they're just the wrong. It's the wrong mixture of con of people and mediums. Yeah. No. I mean, but that's how everything is now. TikTok is the uh, public forum of um, realizing that Nico was racist. Yeah. Problematic faves. Gen Z soapbox. Ugh. Yeah, I don't have a TikTok. This is for the best. I know. I I couldn't. I I already have these vultures on my ass on Twitter. Uh, Chelsea Girls by Nico on the album Chelsea Girl. So Chelsea Girls plural. Yeah. Mm. Five or six 
It's enough to make you sick Bridget's all wrapped up in foil You wonder if She can uncoil Here they come This one's great. I love this song. This might be my favorite song after re-listening a couple times today. Yeah? Yeah, I don't know why. I just, I love how, like, I like that it's really long, and I like that she doesn't hold back, and I like it as, like, it just, to me, sounds like an exercise in storytelling and, like, telling these accounts of just, like, women she knew all living in this famous hotel building and spending time together and, like, just, like, the stories that were told and that everyone heard all written down and, like, it seems like mostly unedited, you know, like there were, it's, they didn't cut the song down a lot. Like you get to hear every little story and every verse is kind of a story. And I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really dense and fully actualized song from her. I think it feels like she's really in command of it. Yeah. And, uh, interesting. This is Sterling's credit on the record. Really? Uh, songwriting. Uh-huh. Uh, Sterling Morrison. So really, uh, this was a team effort from everyone in the Velvets minus Mo. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, because they wouldn't allow her to have drums on the drums. record. What a shame! Can you oh, imagine? This, like, wouldn't it the, sound great with Mo on the kit? I mean, yeah. Mo playing drums with the, just Mo. The idea of of Nico and Mo just like hanging out at the studio is so it it cheers me. <laughs> I like thinking about that. It's like an Abbott and Costello kind of thing. You've got like the like super tall German Nazi supermodel and also just like this Long Island just kid Mo. in Mo. Maureen uh, wearing like a sweatshirt. Right. <laughs> and, and and Nico just looking like she she could kill you with her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, Chelsea Girls of the song, right? Like, all of the people in this song, and it makes sense that Lou has a credit on this because this is Lou's style of songwriting, just writing about the people in his life that he ran with. Like, all of these people are real people. Uh, Bridget is Bridget Berlin. Uh, Ondine, obviously, is Ondine. Uh, you've got Mary Warnov in oh, here. Oh, who is so... She's so cool. Mary Warnov? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have, a, I have a crush on her, like now, as uh, how how she is now. Um. But yeah, I mean, it uh, it it sort of seems like it's just like a montage, you know, kind of like checking in on all of these different rooms in the Chelsea Hotel, in a sense, uh, and all of the stories that all of these characters are getting up to. Not characters, people, actual fucking real people. Um. And Nico just kind of narrating in this beautiful, reserved, distant kind of style, and yet at the same time, you know, emotional in its way. It's kind of actually a generous thing that there's a song and that there are songs like this that kind of give the public a glimpse into the actual experience and thoughts and feelings of being there in this very rarefied and private world of of, of that scene at that time. I like that about this, this song. You know, you've kind of get the sense of these like lived in lives in New York. These just people who are like friends and they go out together and it feels like you're just kind of meeting them midway through their lives and their little, their apartments and dinner parties. And 
you get some of that sort of lifestyle porn on this song and, and others by the Velvets and by Nico that feel like you're being let into something. Yeah. And I think that's what makes them, I mean, that's what sets them apart from so many of the other artists from this time. And I think that's what like Andy really realized and set out to achieve is that like, it feels like he realized that creating a community that's like, exclu- well, with Andy, it felt a bit more superficial in some ways to me because he did literally curate people, but right. creating a community that's like, su- like exclusive and, you know, artistic and like based on certain values of artistry and like, you know, having a similar lifestyle will make you famous in your own right. Like Mm -hmm. that level of exclusivity is going to draw people in because people are going to want to know more about, you know, if you give them an inch, if you give them like a look into these people's lives, they're going to want to know everything about it. Yeah. Which is kind of what happened. It's true. And, and I don't know there's a way of thinking about Andy that is sort of negative or it's just that he was kind of like calculating and just like doing this to create this stable of people. But the more I see in videos and the more I like read about him and it, it really feels like he was charmed and fascinated personally by a lot yeah. of these people. And if not all of the people he included in there, and I'm increasingly inclined to think of him as somebody who just loved these people characters and wanted to share them yeah i mean i think i think it's looked back on negatively because a lot of these people's lives didn't pan out the glamorous way that they had hoped or that the public watching them had expected it to be but also i think to hold him to the standard to keep an entire group of people's lives together is like kind of ridiculous these are all the people that he wanted to spend time with and because they were able to like make money off of their appearance or you know gain like some sort of clout or whatever at the time because of who they were and who they were hanging out with. And like, they took that to themselves to kind of get into drugs or different, you know, shitty ideologies like Nazism is shouldn't be on his back alone. It's just he was the person who brought them together. There's that song on songs for Drella called it wasn't me. It's uh, about him. It's sort of from Andy's perspective, defending himself against these accusations that he killed Edie Sedgwick basically and um and all these people and sort of just feeling like it wasn't me like it wasn't me who got them onto drugs or did this or that wasn't me who shamed you wasn't me who brought you down you did it to yourself without any help from me I mean, it does feel like a very uniquely New York experience though I feel like even in the communities that I see created in New York now whoever the ringleader is for like a small moment in time is eventually like demonized or villainized for their actions, even though they're just a regular fucking person who's better at talking to people than everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's really all it comes down to, but like you see that happen even now. And like the, the like scenes that like form around one person or a group of people and then eventually fizzle out, like the person who started it or the group of people who started it are eventually going to be vilified at the end of the day, no matter what. A podcast or two comes to mind, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or bands or magazines or, I don't know, fucking designers. Like, it's anything. Anyone who has it's a group tr- of yeah. friends, it's just like, if you're in a group of friends in New York, you're the villain, absolutely, immediately. <laughs> well, because you're the gatekeeper, ultimately. You'll be seen as the one who will let or let you in or exclude you, and it's easier mm-hmm. to just hate on that. But 
I think generous would be the word I would use for Andy and for yeah. Chelsea girls, this song and on this record, because there's something that doesn't feel exclusionary about it. It feels like uh, you are welcome to hear these sort of like intimate feelings and ideas um, from someone who's there. And it it's just neither here nor there about like, are you invited personally? It's just like, you know, there's a song here about that. And to draw inspiration from that and just give it on your record is like, who can be mad at that about that? Also as like viewers in the future, looking at this stuff, they gave one of the fullest pictures of like that scene. They have so many, you know, mediums of art to describe the same group of people. Like, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. There's no fuller picture you could get. They have a video of them. You have a whole movie about them. You have a song and you have Mm -hmm. probably countless paintings and other videos. You know, it's like, yeah, that's the thing that's so that's missing really from so many scenes and so many moments in history of understanding it is, you could have as many pictures and, and accounts and journals, whatever, but the fullest picture is to have songs too mm-hmm. written about it. Songs are so able to un- like, a, like nothing else sort of illustrate what it really felt like. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. They were very uh, savvy at uh, sort of hyping, hyping each other up, I think, and creating this uh, multimedia multidimensional picture of all of this stuff because Andy would find the people, put them in the movies, the people in the movies would become subjects for the songs of Nico who performed with the Velvets which again was put on by Andy initially and then were performing in front of you know uh, his own kind of uh, uh, projections and stuff like that. It's all, it's like a very um, extended Warhol cinematic Yeah literally honestly (laughs) and it all kind of reinforces itself on the other end and then gives someone on the other side of things more kind of um, uh, material to do their own shit with it's a I mean honestly a very kind of forward thinking ahead of its time kind of approach to shit which very much so where were we? we were at Bob Dylan this also was another one of my favorites after re-listening because I feel like I listened to the first half of this album a lot and then I kind of put it down after this, but this song is one that I don't always get to that I listened to so many times today and I was just like, I love it so much. song it's one of my favorite dylan songs that's like uh, among the ones he forgets that he wrote apparently right well i mean he gave he 
gave he the gave song it to Nico, to... as the legend goes. Yeah, perhaps you know, uh, uh, following up on their uh, romantic tryst uh, that took place a couple years before this. But I think this song is perfectly suited for Nico. Like there, there is there are great Bob versions of this song. That kind of pounding, plonking solo piano one. I think that we've talked about Alcatraz to the ninth power. No, that's not the name of it. That's what you told me when you left. I switched songs. This song is, uh, 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 Bank Account Blues. <laughs> Correct cue, Bank Account Blues. Take one, roll it. You will search me at any cost. But how long be? Search for what is not lost Everybody will help you Some people are very kind But if I can save you anytime But like this one, I think is right up there with it uh, in terms of um, I don't know, just the way that she can kind of nail this vocal and this feeling. You love, I love to hear like her because her voice is so smooth, you know. And Bob's voice, especially at this time, is not that. It's very kind of sharp and serrated. And and hearing this vocal in the complete different, you know, opposite kind of recitation uh, that you get with Nico is so is so cool. Yeah, it's just a really sweet and pure love song and listening to it is kind of like oh i'm so i can't believe i get to feel this way after the second track being these days it's like you're back to be feeling a little bit hopeful and um this part of the record um the next couple songs anyway are i think is starting with chelsea girls in a way it's kind of like taking things back up to a place of being a little bit more uh, optimistic or positive. It's I like that this song feels different from these days and um uh the first one's name is Ferris of the Seasons. Of the seasons. I, yeah, this song feels different from these days and Ferris of the Seasons because those songs both sound so like wondering and like introspective to me whereas this song feels so like knowing lyrically. Mm. It feels so like assured of itself and like even her delivery or like, like her like distance emotionally that you can hear and like the detachedness of it feels so like Indiana Jones talking to a woman. Vibes. <laughs> like she's still like, come on, babe, give it yeah. to me. Like she doesn't care, but she like she knows it's gonna work out is like how I feel when she sings those words, you know. Yeah. Which I really like. Totally. And you get yeah. the feeling that Dylan, you know, if he wrote this song with her in mind and then gives it to her and then she's singing it, even if it was fleeting, that feels like a really deep sort of communion, like this this sharing of something. Um, and she communicates it with, mm. yeah, this feeling of like, it feels like whatever that song, you know, you'd hope that writing a song like this in 
writing it for and giving it to someone you're trying to be with the best case scenario is that they perform the song as better than you do Mm. yeah it feels like i don't know it feels really like he wanted to take care of her in giving her this you know he went like it's like a parting gift in a way that's like you'll be okay take this Mm -hmm. and then we'll part ways and you know i'll see you when i see you but i think that's really sweet about it and it's like um emotionally it's quite masculine in a way that's like you know it's about you know taking care of someone else's troubles and pain which i don't think you hear women talking about that much it's like a very masculine perspective in a relationship caring for another person in that way right. it's nice to hear this, this to me is the song where she gets to step into her masculine maybe not like sonically like she would have wanted but definitely emotionally it feels like such a tall dark and mysterious guy vibe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's something i get from a lot of your songs is a feeling of being like self-assured having a shared sense of that sort of masculine energy and and taking control and also very feminine at the same time mm. and it's something that she seems to nail here a lot of her best work has something of that quality well thank you and i feel like you can hear in this album, like the way she influenced a lot of other female singers. Like, I don't know, like I listened to this album three times today. And the one that came to mind the most was like, I just feel like Liz Fair grew up on this album in a crazy way. And I was like, these all sound like songs that she would cover or have written herself in a cool way. And like, I think about all the other like uh, women musicians that got to listen to this album and be inspired by it in a way that like, it's just different from a lot of other women's music. It has like two voices at once. Right. Which is like a different way of exploring this kind of folky pop music. Like two, regular. two thematic voices. Yeah. 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 She almost, I mean, she was young when this album came out, but to me, like this album feels so like mature and wise. Mm-hmm. Like this is an album I could imagine someone writing in like, their 50s and 60s because it feels so like even her moments of wondering like in the first two songs still feel like they have so much life experience and in her delivery of it it feels like there's so much life experience because like she's so detached and like she's really just telling you how it is it's so impressive for a first release because of that to me totally the next song somewhere there's a feather jackson's uh third and final appearance on the record i believe and not quite as uh, all-timer brutal as Ferris of the Seasons or these days. A little lighter, a little yeah. easier to to listen to, but very pleasant also. I think the second side of this record definitely tries to modulate some of the uh, harsh feelings that are conjured up by the, the first side uh, with a couple of these uh, more emotionally assured type tracks like this. Stand apart 
Yeah, I was thinking about how different the record would be if these days was toward the end. Yeah, it would really change the feeling of it because it's so it, it's odd to have it so close to the beginning too. It's such a heavy thing to put at the top. But well, I think they knew that was the that was the best song on the record, and that's why it's the second song on the record. That's that's right. <laughs> we're trying to sell we're trying to sell records here, baby. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, artistically speaking, it it could have had a greater cumulative emotional punch to pack had it occurred here towards the end yeah this song it's, it's nice cute. it's kind of yeah, cute it's an the, album cut. the strings are kind of are nice the little kind of like do 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 you know it's 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 fun it's definitely the most optimistic on the album yeah mm-hmm. totally and like sweet somewhere there's a feather falling slowly from the sky you need not know the reason why don't ask me how i know it now the future does not show itself to me but this is it's a song about that in the depression after a breakup that like you you will eventually meet someone else is kind of the the lyrical idea um like don't cry about how you'll never meet another person like they're they will they're out there and you'll encounter them at some point yeah like a song about serendipity in a way yeah which is really sweet and optimistic to me it's hopeful in a way that the first two songs are not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good to get uh, more than just sad bastard, you know, yeah. crying in his beard type yeah. shit from Jackson. T- take that gun out of your mouth. <laughs> Somewhere there's a feather. Great news. <laughs> and then with the second to last track, Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams, this is a Lou song. Mm-hmm. And there's also that very odd version of it that was like really early that John sings on the... A uh, new release from Light in the Attic. That's right. Rapey Troubles and Dreams, Words, Music, Lou Reed. your troubles and dreams. Send them all away. Put them in a bottle and across the Exactly. Very odd song. And and this version of it is really interesting because I think it's kind of unique on the record in that it, I guess maybe Chelsea Girls is the only other one that, and it was a pleasure then maybe, but it has this kind of like neutral quality. It doesn't feel particularly um, emotionally heavy one way or the other. It's almost like psychedelic in this way. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say, like kind of psychedelic, kind of spiritual, mm-hmm. lyrically. Almost like Van Morrison, like like Astral Weeks yeah. type stuff is happening here. Exactly like that. Wrap your troubles in dreams Send them all away Put them in a bottle and across Yourself for holy death, 
Watching by the door Drive and sway to music To me it feels very like mystic and philosophical and just trying to like express reasons to not worry and like mm -hmm. it feels almost like a manifestation in a lot of ways yeah yeah like a prayer toward warding off those worst things yeah i didn't even realize till now that how much the record seems to have an arc that in the sequencing kind of implies like a reconciliation at the end yeah, which I, I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking about when I was listening to it before and I kind of thought of this character because I feel like the reason my mind went to All Tomorrow's Parties and like Femme Fatale is because I feel like those songs really paint this character in a negative light and then they come to this album and it starts like kind of sad and it has these ups and downs, but at the end you kind of start to come to like a bit more of a lighter place, like she's not just some vapid party girl and she's not just some depressed person. She also has hopes and dreams and she's optimistic mm -hmm. for the future in the same way that any other person is. And it like gives this whole person and the character that Nico's portraying on the behalf of these writers and, you know, the culmination of all these women that all of them know, it gives it so much more dimension than just those two songs could have on their own, you know? Yeah. 100%. Which feels really special. And like, an amazing study in songwriting and in like, you know, this topic that for so many great writers to get together and kind of explore a similar topic through Nico is so beautiful and not something that you get to see in art generally. Right. There's something too about the way that she in particular does it, the way that she executes it. Cause it's not like other songwriters, other women songwriters were, were, that plenty were making records that attempted to do just that and to sort of create a, a three-dimensional and deep portrait of what it is to have sort of a, a feminine perspective on life and death and romance. And something about this record kind of just does away with, even if there's flutes, even if there's strings on it that she didn't want, she has a way of cutting through artifice and um, making all of those things really feel true and making it feel like she really, um, you just leave listening to this record feeling like there's dimensions to her, not definitely three dimensions and probably four or five that you don't even know about. <laughs> and the sixth one, which is being a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me think of the Joe Biden quote when someone asked him how many genders there at are. Least three. <laughs> There's at least three. It's the right answer. Uh, she's at least three dimensional. She might even be four or five dimensional. Tell you what. Um, <laughs> this song is uh, is very fluty. Uh, this is yeah. <laughs> this one. They, they really spent the whole flute budget on this one. This is where she started crying. The end. Yeah, this is her exactly. last straw. Yeah. Uh, just puts this one on, just like breaks the red, cracks it over her knee and throws it out the fucking window. <laughs> yeah. Weird, just a weird song to pick to have on this record and a weird song to pick to dress up with all this flute and viola kind of uh, shit on top of it. Just mm. just judging based on that, that demo version from that Lou record. From oh, the that's Lightning a Attic weird, release. 
it's like so like spooky and sparse. It's, it's barely like, even a song. It's like yeah, a chant. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I mean, props for making that become as as you know just kind of pleasant uh, as as this ends up becoming. Um, but it still retains some of that kind of weird, you know, unsettling kind of quality to it. I think. We haven't talked about the cover at all, but what do you think about it? I love the cover. I think it's so sweet and classic and beautiful. Yeah, she looks amazing. I think it goes a long way towards, like, affecting the feeling that you get off of this record and really kind of, like, playing into and playing up Nico's whole kind of, you know, legend and and personality uh, in the first place between that, that super stark black and white photo where she's just staring daggers at someone off camera um, and then obviously the color photograph where she could not possibly look more wistful. Uh, yeah. She's plaintively had Yeah. It's, it really is kind of the perfect, it, it, it's what the record sounds like. Yeah, exactly. It's those two, those yeah. two people. That's this record is those two, you know, kind of intentionally with one another. Yeah. That like skeletal gaze and then the sort of sensitive pondering one yeah that's uh the, the the black and white picture is uh it was a pleasure then and then the, the color picture is these days yeah mm-hmm. billy name and paul morrissey did the photography and the uh the the design and stuff so again just more from the factory crew doing their own shit you know in this in this regard and helping play up another person's personality and fame and infamy it just looks so like perfectly of its time and like Mm. it's really just the perfect encapsulated vibe of this album i love it and like i don't know to me this album sounds kind of before its time in a lot of ways yeah but the album never dates it if anything it makes it feel like older and like french yeah (laughs) yeah it really looks like uh it reminds me of like yeah like a french movie from like 1970 or something yeah it looks like it could be like a francois hardy album cover yeah in the best way you know the the choice to not make it super colorful is really the right one that would have been a mistake and it's nice that there's a balance it's like a real yin yang of yeah of her and I like that there's a colon too, Nico colon Chelsea girl. Mm. It's kind of like that she is the Chelsea girl, just to make that very clear. Yeah. And she says that in interviews too. I am, I would say virtually the only person that really uh, has something to do with the, the hotel in the sense that we've done the, the movie and we've done, uh, I've done the record and it's i'm still getting royalties from it <laughs> so i guess it's i am the person the chelsea girl right i sent you that uh thing um there's a a version um of chelsea girls um that was in 1980 the electric guitar yeah it's really cool yeah so cool but i like was watching a couple other videos of her playing later oh yeah that are kind of scarier where she's dyed her hair brown and she looks really, really gaunt. The one where she's, she's playing thinking. heroes. I think I sent that yeah. to you a while ago. It was like yeah. really intense. I was rewatching that and it's so intense and sad, but really beautiful. Yeah. She's, I think she's one of the most beautiful looking people 
at that point, you know, in a in a way that's uh, equally scary <laughs> as it is beautiful. Yeah. The last song here is in. So we're touching all. We're touching all the bases, Good, folks. We've got. We've got Bob. We've got John. <laughs> we've got Lou. We've got Jackson Brown. We've got Tom Wilson. And it wouldn't be complete without a mention of everyone's favorite New York City stand-up comic, Lenny Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> which is there's. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, Sabrina, but th- there's a Bob Dylan song about Lenny Bruce. It's become a um, a foundational touch point, a, a foundational yeah. text. Yeah, it's called Lenny Bruce, um, and he says Lenny Bruce is dead, uh, and it's it's sort of a a, a ballad about you could Lenny. almost call it uh, a eulogy. Yeah, it, you Bruce. could just describe what Dylan's song is as a eulogy to Lenny Bruce, and that's how the song, uh, that's how this record ends. Um, which. If you want to, you know, what you were saying, Sabrina, about like the the record kind of doing away with any idea that this is like a vanity project or like something that is just thrown out there to for a model turned singer to have some record to hawk like that. That is so not the case, the, Like mm-hmm. especially not to mention any, every song we've talked about, but. The fact that it ends here with eulogy to Lenny Bruce, it feels like so um, it's really a personal and uh, deep song about losing a friend. You know, there's nothing that would ever appear on just some record meant to boost a modeling career. That's just not what we have here at all. Yeah, I feel like. It, it you know it speaks to that community too because a lot of, I mean everybody in that community lost a lot of friends by this time already and they were going to lose a lot more after this album came out in the years to come and stuff like um, I think it's just further painting a picture of what that life in New York in that scene was like with like the highs and the lows and the optimism and the artfulness but like also the loss so much that you experienced in day to day life and in your community of losing friends and, you know, um, trying to keep a community alive despite that. And in the face of like extreme addiction. Lenny Bruce could be a number of people in the song, um, as specific as it is to him, um, with lines like, how did she know that you needed morphine? There's so much that is applicable to other people in, in the culture and in the scene that we're dealing with similar things. Um, it feels like Lenny Bruce has kind of become and in the song acts as a symbol for just what happened often where somebody meant a lot uh, in, in a cultural world and then was gone. Mm. Really a low note to end the album on. This <laughs> Yeah.
get together to die And why after every last shot Was there always another That's that's a uh, fitting considering that the most of the album cover is the giant icy head of of Nico and there's slightly less of her um looking plaintive and neutral. There's always I think as with the rest of her career uh, just a few more points of sadness than there are of optimism mm. it's a very nico record yes yeah. and honestly i mean it just is a remarkable document i think because of how many different modes and moods it can inhabit in a pretty brief runtime 45 minutes you know uh and and it really just does so much with so little uh both musically speaking and also lyrically speaking like a lot of these songs are so simple and, and short and yet you get such a rich kind of emotional text out of them i think uh whether it's the fairest of the seasons and and these days at the beginning uh whether it's somewhere there's a feather and i'll keep it with mine whether it's fucking <laughs> lenny bruce is dead uh there's there's uh so much within such a brief record um love it well on this program we rank the records sometimes. We didn't do it for yeah, Loaded. We didn't you do it Loaded, yeah. Three stars for Loaded. Two stars for Loaded. Boo. How many stars would you give Chelsea Girl by Nico? Out of three. Oh, out of three? One, two, or three. One, two, or three. Oh, out of three. I thought it was going to be out of ten. All right, all right. That's, That's too way many, too, many too many stars. stars. You're right, you're right. It's too much leeway. All right, out of three... And I can't do half points? Right. Three. I think it's a three. I'm with you. Three-star record from Nico. I will also say it is a three. Wow. Saying it's compromised feels like nitpicking. It really doesn't feel compromised when you listen to her through the whole thing. Like, yeah, her- I mean, it can, no, be, it can be two things at once. It can be compromised according to like her initial vision and what she was shooting for and what she mm-hmm. hoped it would become. And it can also be still an amazing, immaculate, beautiful, like perfectly executed, skillfully done uh, album that we can listen to here, you know, half a century later. Yeah. Which I think is exactly what it is. And this is just the first time we're going to talk about Nico, but there's going to be other nico episodes so much more to come yeah and much much uh much it's gonna get much more nico-y yeah (laughs) starting with the very next record sabrina thank you for coming on this was great of course thank you so much for having me i had a great time seriously well it's late in new york (laughs) so until next time thank you Joker man. 
Friends that were staying here with me. That's why I keep coming back here. 